It's good to be with you this morning to look at Acts 13. It is good to be here in Memphis. We, even though we only moved to Memphis last summer, I've actually been part of Amen Bible Study here for almost five years. When I discovered you could download the message uh, on the Internet, uh, I'd go running with Sandy every morning. For me, it was Friday morning because it's 12 hours time difference so in Kazakhstan. Amen happens Thursday night. And so then I download it and go with, run with you guys uh, Friday morning. And if you ask, well, how did you get into Amen Bible Study? Well, you've got to know that I'm also, you know, as uh, Mike just mentioned, a marathon runner. And a lot of training for marathons is psychological. You know, the thought of running for three and a half hours, 26 miles, it's so long. It just gets to, it gets to your thinking. And so you had to find something that made three and a half hours of running seem really short. So listening to Sandy for an hour was perfect. Okay. I was in Kazakhstan for 18 years preaching and teaching. No one was preaching to me. I didn't have anyone to listen to myself because that's what I was out there doing. And when I discovered that we could listen to Sandy's teaching and the other teachers who teach here at Amen, uh, it was a great blessing to me. And as any preacher, well, they don't all admit it, but uh, many of Sandy's sermons got re-preached in some form or another in, in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and other places. Uh, so I'm very thankful to this Amen Bible study and have been running with you guys for four or five years. February 19th is a very special day in American history. February 19th of this year, one month from today, will be a landmark day in American history. Because it was February 12th, 1812, 200 years ago, that the United States sent out his first more uh, foreign missionary. Adoniram Judson boarded a ship in the Boston Harbor on February 19th, 1812, to go to Burma. Actually, he went to India first. He was the first American missionary, and he had some classic American characteristics. He left, and, you know, it's not a quick trip. He didn't get to go, go on Lufthansa uh, in 1812. He uh, took a ship, took over six months to get there, and on the ship, he changed his theology of baptism. So when he got off the boat in India, he had to change denominations. Classic American uh, missionary. He got there, and he already experienced oppression and persecution, but not from the Hindus in India. It was from the East India Tea Company that was distressed about what missionaries were doing, and they were actually opposed to missionary work in India because it threatened uh, their business and it threatened their trade. So within a year, he had to leave India because of commercial interests and went to Burma. He lived in Burma uh, in a very difficult setting. Burma and uh, Britain were not getting along very well then, so the government looked on his work with great suspicion. But he began the work, the mission's work uh, there, began to translate the Bible into Burmese, uh, began to consider how he can communicate Christ's love to a people that were uh, Buddhists, that had no real concept of the Christian faith. But the whole time, the government was very suspicious of him. In fact, uh, 10 years later, they went to war with England, and he was arrested, accused of being a spy and a traitor. He spent over two years in prison uh, suffering terrible tortures. They would chain his legs up just above his head so his shoulders would be on the ground for hours on end, for days on end. He was not expected to live. But his wife, who was loved him so dearly, would go see him every day and bring him food um, and care for him. She was pregnant at the time, 
and the, what she went through to take care of him eventually broke her health, and she would die several years later. Um, he survived by the Lord's providence and the care of his wife. He survived that two-plus-year imprisonment, was freed. Um, then his wife died. He got married again. And his second wife got sick. And so he took his first furlough. Do you know when his first furlough was? 33 years after he left. I took a vacation after one year. <laughs> and we took six furloughs in our 18 years of service. <laughs> He took his first furlough 33 years later, and that was only to try to uh, improve the health of his wife who did die on that uh, trip. Um, he served 38 years, faithfully beginning a small congregation and faithfully translating the Bible into Burmese at the time. That's Myanmar today. The first U.S. missionary was launched just under 200 years ago. Today, we're going to look at the passage where we read about the first missionary team being launched. This is the dividing point in Acts. Uh, it's been leading up to this. If you've read Acts carefully, if you've been with us for uh, the first semester, you've seen that mission is not something new to Acts. It's from the beginning. But this is the text where we see the first missionary team commissioned and launched and sent forth. So if you would turn to Acts chapter 12, 25, we're just going to read the first few verses. Acts 12, 25 to uh, 13, 3. Acts twelve twenty five. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they, had, when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. I want to stop there. We'll read the rest uh, a little bit later. But I think it's important to consider the context of missions. If we're going to look at the first missionary team, if we're going to look at the first missionary endeavor, it's important to ask how it started. I don't think it's insignificant that the text on missions begins here, begins with worship. Because faithful worship is our first order of business. There was a group of people gathered together in worship. Now, remember, this is the middle of Acts. So what happens in worship has already been described uh, by Luke, the author of Luke and Acts. Uh, you'll remember Acts 2, 42 to 47. They were together uh, around the apostles' teaching and prayer. Remember, just get this in our mind, you know, we live in the 21st century, but they didn't. There, there was no New Testament. <laughs> uh, they got around, together around the apostles' teaching. Next week... You'll look at the apostles' teaching. What was it? What was Paul's sermon, uh, similar to Stephen's sermon and this, uh, the sermons of the other apostles? It was the message of Jesus, the history of God's working in God's people in the past in Israel, and the coming of Jesus, his life, his ministry, his death and resurrection. That is the apostles' teaching. They gathered together around the apostles' teaching and prayer. They heard God's word and responded. They broke bread together. That's both meal fellowship and a reference to the sacraments. They had the sacraments together. They 
saw God's works, God's miracles, God's mighty acts among them. They shared their possessions together. They cared for one another. Rich, poor didn't matter. What, my, what I have is yours. They shared together. And together is a body. They responded in praise. Luke has described this in several places. So as a writer, he's not going to repeat all that. But that's what's happening here. They're gathering together around the word of God, around prayer, around responding in praise. They're sharing their life together as a community. Here, there's five teachers mentioned. But that presumes the teachers and prophets, the leaders, are part of a fellowship. We don't know how big the fellowship was. But you'd presume that they were part of a larger body that was gathered together for worship. Corporate, in corporate worship, they were declaring the greatness of God. And I think it's w- worthwhile for us to be sure we've thought about what is worship? What is it when we gather together for worship? It is to declare the truth of who God is, the greatness of God to respond in praise and prayer to his deeds, to respond one to another in loving fellowship and care. And it is to go forth in mission to which he commissions us. Our text focuses on the last. It focuses on going forward in mission. But as pragmatic Americans, we don't need to rush forward and immediately discuss what we're going to do. We need to think through what is uh, mission, what motivates our mission and so let's look at what they're doing as they gather together worship is drawing together diverse brothers faithful worship unites diverse brothers this is a group of believers luke chooses to describe the five leaders did you notice what he chooses to tell us about those five leaders he tells us where they're from barnabas We've already met Barnabas. He's a Levite, Hebrew, from the island of Cyprus. If you get a little geography, you think about the Mediterranean Sea, you know where Cyprus is. That's where Barnabas is from. Simeon, also a Hebrew name, but he's called Niger. He's probably a black African. So he's from sub-Sahara, Africa. Go south. So you got someone from Cyprus, someone south from Africa. Lucius of Cyrene from North Africa. We don't know that he was an Arab, but from North African. Okay, another spot. We're not talking about neighbors here. These are people very far away. Menean, who was brought up uh, in the house of Herod the Great, uh, so a foster brother of Herod Antipas, probably in Palestine was raised, uh, but a political person, raised in the house of power. And then you have Paul of Tarsus, Saul, who will be named Paul in this passage. Uh, And that's because he's going into the Roman world. Paul is just the Romanized version of his uh, Jewish name, his Hebrew name, Saul. So you have five different people from five very different countries, different parts of the world. What we see here is that true worship, genuine worship, unites diverse brothers. Now, this church, you remember from two weeks ago, was formed out of persecution. The believers were being persecuted, and so they fled to different places, one of which was Antioch. And here the gospel goes to the Gentiles, not necessarily not the Jews, not the God-fears, Gentiles who are coming together and hearing the word of God in the synagogues, but it's going to true pagans, people brought up in entirely different religious systems, in entirely different worldviews, 
the gospel is going forth. That's a huge barrier, a huge landmark crossing uh, that the gospel has done. So you have these five different people, these five, these leaders from five different countries in this very diverse setting where uh, God has started this church in Antioch. Faithful worship unites diverse brothers. I served as a missionary in Kazakhstan for 18 years. And what you need to know about Kazakhstan is part of Central Asia. The people are ethnically Turkish, Mongolian, they're a Mongol Turkic people. Uh, they're not Russians. The Russians had a view, a very imperialistic view in the Soviet era, of uniting all people under the Soviet's worldview. Moscow was the center, the capital of everything. They told everybody what to do. And so they Russified all the peoples in their empire. So when I came to Almaty, it was amazing how many different ethnic groups were living together in the city. There were, of course, Russians and Kazakhs, probably roughly 40% each. But then there were Kyrgyz, Uzbeks, other Central Asian peoples, Chinese, Afghans, Ukrainians. There were all kinds of people. And you've got to ask the question, what brought them together? The benevolence of Joseph Stalin. (laughs) He had a vision for uniting people under the Russian worldview. So they were forced to live together. The German population was forced to live in Kazakhstan. You know how they got moved to Kazakhstan? (laughs) During World War II, uh, or the lead up to World War II, they were German-speaking populations that under Catherine the Great had been invited to come live inside the Russian territory. They spoke Russian, lived in Russia, excuse me, they spoke German, lived in German-speaking villages, farmed the land, were good people. But later, century later, uh, they're a threat because they're German-speaking. They're afraid when the German armies came into Russia, invaded Russia, that these people would defect or they'd be spies because they knew the land. So they sent trains in the morning to these villages and said, put your bags on there, and at 1 o'clock you're leaving. Pack all your possessions, anything you want, and we're taking you to Kazakhstan. And when they said they're taking them to Kazakhstan, they didn't mean they were taking them to towns and villages and they'd established places for them to live. No, they just dumped them out on the side of the road. Okay? So Stalin had a vision of uniting all kinds of people. And they were forced to accept it. My language professor who taught me Russian, his name was Alexander Schulmeister. Not a Russian name. Uh, his, his grandmother was one of those people who was deported that way. So sometimes civil forces against people's will drew people together and forced them to live together. But as the Lord brought together a church, Al-Mogul Church, that's the name of the the neighborhood I lived in. The first church that was started was named after the neighborhood, Al-Mogul Church. I served there as a pastor until last June. In that church, we saw, of course, Russians and Kazakhs, Koreans, uh, Kyrgyz, Occasionally, someone from Uzbekistan, several Germans, uh, Americans. And we were drawn together to form one family. Indirectly is a result of Joseph Stalin, but directly is a result of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ united us. And regardless of all our different experiences, and regardless of our different cultures, and even for some of us, our different languages, what united us was much greater than what divided us. Things do divide us. Language, 
When you don't speak the same language, it's hard to have unity. Culture. When you have different cultural backgrounds, it, it does divide you. There are real things that divide different cultures. But far greater than what divided us was our unity. And sometimes people look at missionaries and say, oh, you made such a great sacrifice, you poor people. Let me tell you about our kids growing up. We homeschooled our kids most of the time because there wasn't any English-speaking school. But by the end of our time there, uh, they developed a missionary school for the kids. Our kids grew up with best friends who were Korean, South African, Australian, Norwegian. These are the missionary kids they went to school with. I think there must have been 15 different nationalities there. And, of course, going to our church, you've already heard the nationalities there. That, to them, is normal. What a blessing they have. Two of our four kids uh, came back to the United States with a desperate desire to learn Korean because they have such genuine friendships. There's some movies my daughter has seen in Korean that she hasn't seen in English. <laughs> she doesn't speak Korean, but she knows you know, a dozen words and maybe some more phrases. That's a vision for what God does. God unites diverse people. Now, if you want to be a little theological, I know it's awfully early to be theological, you know, but you ought to be asking the question, is what we read in Acts descriptive or prescriptive? Meaning, is what we read in Acts, does it simply describe what happened to occur in this one city in Antioch, which it does. It's just descriptive. He's, Paul, uh, Luke is not saying, this is how the church has to be. It's a description. Or is it prescriptive? Now, when you read narrative in the Bible, as opposed to a letter, Paul's letter to the Romans, or a, a prophecy or some different other genres, when you read narrative, it is by definition descriptive, but it's teaching something as well. And if you remember Acts, if you remember Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, what happened? What did Luke teach us? That the Spirit spoke in all these different languages so all these different nationalities could come and hear one gospel, great diversity, one gospel. What happened What did, uh, happened after with Stephen and then Philip? He went to preach in his random place to the Ethiopian eunuch. Ethiopian eunuch, not part of Palestine. We remember Peter's vision of the sheets in Acts 10 and 11. We recently looked at that. God says to Peter, don't call unclean what I've called clean. So you have teaching that gives this vision. And, of course, you have the very vision of the book of Acts in Acts 1.8. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and beginning 13 to the ends of the earth. So it is not only description, it is instruction. Our worship unites us. We do have real barriers between us and others of different cultures, of different ethnicities, different socioeconomic status, there are things that divide us, and they're real things. But faithful worship, genuine worship, true worship unites us because what we have in common is so much greater than anything that divides us. I think that's a question we must ask and we must consider as we ask, what is true worship? Are we genuinely worshiping? But let's look further. What happens as these Diverse brothers who've been united by the Spirit, who've been united by their love for Christ, come together. God speaks. <laughs> Faithful worship expects 
two-way communication. Notice what happened here, verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to the work to which I have called them. They're worshiping, and the Holy Spirit spoke to them. Now, there were prophets and teachers. Luke describes who they were. So they're teaching the existing word of God. They're explaining how to apply it. They're speaking the word of God. Now, again, at that time, they didn't have a New Testament. So prophecy was active. Uh, The writers of the New Testament were writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The letters of Paul, the other, uh, you know, the, the... the rest of the New Testament was being written. So prophecy, the revelation of God's will, the explanation, the teaching, the application was going on. Do remember that God had already called Paul. You'll remember in Acts 9, God spoke to Paul and said, you will be my ambassador to the Gentiles. I will give you a message. And interestingly, he told Ananias, uh, the man who received Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer uh, on my sake, as Christ has suffered, so Paul would suffer. But he's already been called. So the calling is not even a new revelation. But here, the Holy Spirit, in this time of teaching, in this time of worship, says, it is time. It is time to go forth. And that got me to thinking, what do we expect to happen in worship? When you're in a church worship service, and I'll start there, a worship can happen in any body, can happen in any context. It can even happen individually. So as we have our personal devotions, of, that's our worship of the Lord. As we get together in our small groups and in our Bible studies and our Sunday school classes, the word, prayer, declaring God's greatness, response, that's worship. But here I'm thinking of the worship service. where we gather together in a church service, what are you expecting to have happen? Let me just have a little confessional here about what I, how I viewed church worship when I was a child. I was very thankful we had bulletins. Do you know why? (laughs) Because I could see how much longer the service would go. (laughs) I was very thankful, actually, for the the worst part for me was the offertory. Because you didn't do anything. You just sat and listened. And so I'm listening. And the long songs for me were actually worse. Because, uh, excuse me, were actually better. Because on a long song, you could follow. And you knew when the choir was singing or whoever was singing how fast they were going. The short ones made me nervous because they'd repeat the line over and over again. And I'd go, oh, no, I thought we were already past that one. And they'd go again. And then we'd open the hymnal and it was six verses. Oh, no, not six whole verses. Maybe that was preparation for being a marathon runner. (laughs) Because in running, I always know how much farther. I got a clock going. I got a mile marker. And I remember one marathon, uh, I missed one of the mile markers. I didn't see it. Uh, And in my mind, I somehow skipped two and I got to mile 23 and the mile said 22 I started crying I said no I can't go that much farther because in, your, in our mind it's, it's an endurance race how long can I endure I hope naively none of us do that anymore but how do we look at worship when we're in a corporate worship service is it active or passive because even if you've got your mind around what worship really is There's a difference between passively listening and singing and repeating prayers and actively engaging in in that same word of God, in those same prayers. Let me show you the difference. How would your worship change if you knew 
if you genuinely expected that today God is going to speak to you during this worship time. God has a specific, relevant, immediately applicable word for you right now. Will that change the way you worship? Maybe I'm the only guy who sometimes can't find his stuff. Sometimes I'm looking for my keys, my glasses, a book, and I'm looking around the house, and I look and look at all the places, and I can't find it. And then I ask my beloved, have you seen, of course, right there in the, on this drawer over there, and I go do this, look in the same place. I've looked there two or three times already because I know I'm going to get in trouble if I go ask her. <laughs> and I look in the exact same place, but now I look differently because I know it's there. When she says, yeah, I put it there yesterday, or I saw you put it there yesterday more likely, <laughs> Uh, I know it's there, and I look differently, and sure enough, it's there. <laughs> I find the keys, the glasses, what I was looking for. When you come to worship, do you expect God to speak? Do you expect to meet God and him to really audibly, in a concrete way, give you his word for the day, for the week? Worship is an active endeavor. These people in Antioch were actively worshiping. They expected God to communicate with them, and he did. Unfortunately, that's the easy part. The next part is harder because faithful worship presumes obedience. (laughs) Faithful worship presumes obedience. What happened? God spoke, verse 3, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They commissioned Paul and Barnabas to go do the work to which God had called them. They fasted and prayed, then they sent them out. Again, is this how we look at worship? (laughs) Worship means acknowledging the greatness and the worth of the one to whom we offer our worship. It means coming before God and saying, you're my Lord, you're my King. What you say I will do, I come to you in obedience. I offer myself to you. See, everything else we do, every other word we hear, we evaluate. If somebody asks you to do something, you got a little grid. And you say, hmm, do I want to do this? Is this a good thing to do? What are the consequences if I don't do it? We have a grid. We evaluate and then make a decision. Yes, I'll do that. Or no, I won't. Worship is something different. We can attend a worship service. <laughs> we can participate in a Bible study. But if we're not submitting our mind, our thinking, our lives to God, it's not worship. These brothers... I assume there were sisters with them. They knew how to worship because when they came and God spoke, they obeyed. It was presumed. It was, they controlled their approach to God. So faithful worship unites diverse brothers. Faithful worship expects God to speak. And faithful worship begins with the presumption that we will obey. So what happened when these brothers came together for worship? God commissioned missions because faithful worship produces missions. Now, I want you to think about what happened here. The Holy Spirit speaks. He tells them to send forth Paul and Barnabas. Who are Paul and Barnabas? (laughs) Barnabas is like the executive pastor. When this church was formed, the the head church in Jerusalem was nervous what was going on, so they sent out Barnabas to check it out because of these crazy Gentiles. Who knows what they're doing up there? So Barnabas comes to check it out. He says, no, this is good. This is of the Lord. He went and found Paul in Tarsus, uh, called the senior pastor. You know, so he comes and he's the main preaching guy. These are the two top leaders in a church. And God says to the church, commission them and send them out as foreign missionaries. 
Paul will never return to a permanent position in this church, ever. Barnabas will be gone for years at a time. This church is not even a year old. I don't know how many of you are involved in these questions of organizing churches. This was my job. Uh, so we were, church, we were a church planning mission, and we started new churches. That was the whole focus of our work there. If any of you ever started a new church with a strategy that as soon as this thing gets started in the first year, we're going to commission 40% of our top leadership to go off and never come back. Anybody ever heard of that strategy? Maybe I'm in the wrong crowd here. Okay, We all have business interests and uh, you know, our professional interests. Have any of you ever started a practice, started a business with the idea that it, within the first year, as soon as things get going, you're going to take your 40% of your best people and send them away, never, ever to come back and return and contribute to your business, to your practice? It's crazy. It's not a human strategy. It's a spirit-led strategy. Faithful worship leads to mission it produces mission because the holy spirit will commission missions the holy spirit will speak to us and send us out because it's not a human endeavor it must be a divine endeavor if it's not a divine endeavor we're all sunk okay so in worship they meet the lord and the lord says send them out it's kind of hard to grasp how wild the world would seem to this church but they're saying, send them out to the ends of the earth. We've heard it in Acts 1.8. Send them out to places they don't know anything about. You can't predict what's going to happen. There's not a formula for success. But God has a vision that they will come to know me, that they will hear the gospel and respond. God is leading. You know, it's a whole different mindset. What are we about? Are we about the kingdom of God and God's glory? Are we about our own interests? Because we all face that decision. I faced it. I faced it as a church planter. Once things get going, you kind of want to take care of what you got. And you want to invest inside. And, of course, we have to do that. It's interesting. The Spirit didn't send out 100%. But he sent out 40%. It requires dependence upon the Spirit and obedience to him. So think again about worship. When you hear the benediction at the end of the worship service. Do you just take that as a blessing? You've been here, God bless you, and now you can go home. Or do you take that as a commission? You've been here, you've met with God, now go into your mission. See, there's foreign missions, which we'll talk about because that's what's happening here, but there's also just understanding our mission. And when you leave a worship service, you are commissioned to go accomplish your mission, your proclamation of the gospel in word and deed. We're all commissioned uh, as we go forth from worship. And I kind of wonder, what, what prevents us from thinking like this? And I think it's a certain tendency to be risk-averse. Because to send out your best people, it's a risky endeavor. So do ask yourself the question today, this week, what risks am I not taking that God wants me to take? Are you willing to send forth your best, your best out of your group of five, your best out of your time and resources? You know the concept of tithe, right? It's the top 10%, not the last. Think about that in a broader scale. Are you willing to send forth your best to missions? I meet so many missionary 
minded young people who are afraid of what their parents and their grandparents are going to say. So those of you who are parents and grandparents, I would say if your children or grandchildren come, say, you know, I'm thinking about foreign missions. It's an honor. They're the top 40%. They're the elite leadership that God is perhaps preparing to commission to send out. And I can testify that the blessings we receive in missions are far greater than any sacrifice we make. If I had the time, I could tell you how blessed we are, how blessed our children are. When we left and had the picture of the little baby, you know, we had two kids with us when we left, you know, a, a year and a half old in arms and a three-year-old toddler. What a great sacrifice. They're going to a stunned country. Who knows? They're going to be eaten by cannibals. I don't know. They're, everyone's scared of what's happening. The truth of the matter is I know very few peers who are as blessed as we have been with the experiences my kids have had, with the worldview they have, with the both ability to work in the world and to work for God's kingdom in the world. We are so blessed. Very few peers get that experience. And it was because we lived where God called us to live, even if it was a very unusual address. Serving in missions is a blessing. And when your kids and your grandkids sense a call, feel honored, feel privileged that you get to take part and bless them and say, yes, go forth. If that's what the Lord needs you to do. Now, there are procedures. We do need to check. We do need to be sure these are the people who are called. And that is what we do. Um, But I do hear a lot of fear from the next generation of missionaries. So worship sends us out. Now, let me read what happened when they got sent out. Now, again, I would love to talk about the rest of the book of Acts. There's going to be missions and encounters for the next half of the book, for the second half of the book. But we're just going to look at the beginning. So I'll try to keep it in our time slot, especially since I've got a flight leaving uh, shortly. Maybe Sandy planned it that way. I'll go ahead and start with verse 4 and read the 12. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bargesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So Paul goes forth on his first missionary journey, and immediately he encounters opposition because faithful missions always encounters opposition. You see, the devil actively works to distort and pervert the truth. The devil actively distorts and perverts the truth. Look at verse 6. They met a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. <laughs> Think about that description for a minute. Uh, First, he's a magician. 
Well, let me back up and be sure we got the geography straight. They left Antioch, which is on the coast, and went to the island of Cyprus and started on one side and went to the other, preaching the word of God. The word they were preaching spread. They probably started in the synagogues, preached there, but it spread and other people heard because surely this Roman proconsul was not going to the synagogue. He hears about it and says, hey, I want to hear more. Summon those visitors and I'd like to have an audience with them. So the proconsul calls them and, and he's got an assistant, Elymas, who's first of all a magician. How do magicians work? Well, in our day, we think of this sleight of hand, right? You get somebody's attention over here while you pull something out of your coat over here. When we were in Kazakhstan, I was at a wedding and at the wedding reception, and they had a magician you know, doing acts as part of the, the whole you know, party deal. Uh, and he had an assistant. And the last culminating act was they got a volunteer who they appointed to go stand up next to the assistant. And they tied his hands. Okay, guess who the volunteer was? <laughs> You'll see, you know, the, they think it's going to be really funny that the pastor is up there with the assistant who you might imagine uh, she's not the most modestly dressed. Um, so it'd be really funny to get him up there, get the, the pastor up there with her. So they call me up there, tie my hands, and then somehow tie her. So they tie her hands, tie my hands, and we're, we're tied together. And then the magician, you know, giving his spiel, has a curtain that's, you know, like a big ring. And so he raises it up so you can't see. Okay? So I'm tied up, she's tied up, and we're behind the curtain, and he starts shaking it, you know. Ah, real funny. What's going on with the pastor back there? And, uh, and then one, two, three, and he drops the curtain, and my hands are free. She's still tied up, and she's wearing my jacket. Later on, my wife said, how did that happen? How, how did I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sitting there, and all she said to me was, stand still. So I stand still, you know, and then I'll, next thing you know, uh, yeah. Uh, sleight of hand. So we don't know how she did it, but it's just a trick somehow, right? She untied real quick, and she knew how to do it. I don't, you know. Uh, in the ancient world, maybe there was more uh, supernatural ideas. You know, we know about Pharaoh's magicians back in Exodus, right? You know, they actually did something with the black arts, with demonic or some evil forces. Um, so this guy's a magician, but what's shocking is that he's a Jewish magician. Okay, because, you know, the Old Testament is not real fond of magicians, you know? I mean, it's forbidden, it's, it's demonic, it's absolutely against Jewish. Also, this guy is a bad guy on both fronts. We remember there were Jewish people who were persecuting the Christians. We remember that in the first half of Acts. But this guy is suspect on both fronts because no self-respecting Jew, particularly those in uh, Israel who were the ones who were persecuting the Christians, would acknowledge this guy. So he's a magician. Uh, he's a Jewish magician. And his name is Bar-Jesus. Now, in Arabic, excuse me, in Aramaic, Bar just means son of. So he's called the son of Jesus. It could be coincidence. I mean, Jesus is... Uh, you know, just a Hebrew name, um, but uh, it sounds blasphemous, right? I mean, the son of Jesus, you know, that, that's not working. Uh, so this guy we know is a bad guy. Now listen to the description that he gets when Paul, speaking by the Spirit, declares who he is. This is going to be verse uh, 8. Excuse me, verse 10. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? That's not a sentence you want, <laughs> declared by the Holy Spirit. You son of the devil. I think we're short on time, so I won't turn to John eight forty four. But that's where Jesus talks to some other people and says, you speak like your father, the devil, who is the deceiver, who is full of deceit. Enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. What's interesting here is that Paul has just been described as being 
full of the Spirit. And so I think Luke is giving us the contrast, the extreme contrast. Paul is full of the Spirit and speaks God's Word and speaks truth that transforms lives. And this other guy is full of deceit and villainy. He's a son of the devil because the words he speaks, the actions he does are characterized by his father, the devil. He makes crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Uh, again, uh, another reference is Isaiah 40, 3 to 5. That's the call of John the Baptist. Uh, well, maybe I'll just go ahead and turn there and read some of that. You'll recognize these words. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. All flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What's the way of John the Baptist? What's the way of the kingdom of God of the gospel? The crooked ways become straight. The high places and low places are even down as straight. There's a straight highway. Another topic for another day. It's a narrow highway, but there is a straight highway by which we can come to the Lord. We can be reconciled to God. This guy makes the straight way crooked. See, he's a distorter of the truth, a deceiver of the truth. And so as we read passages like this, we need to know, one, that missions will encounter opposition. And opposition comes in the form of distortion, perversion, exaggeration. See, a distortion contains a partial truth. And you guys can process, you can think about, when have you heard a partial truth? You know those circus mirrors, right, that make you look really tall and skinny or short and fat, that make your face get really wide or skinny, you know? There's something true about that reflection, isn't there? You can see yourself or your friend, you know, in the mirror, and it's funny because it is that person. There is some truth in that reflection. But the problem is all the rest is distorted. So we hear truth, but it's distorted with exaggeration, with skipping certain things, with applying it in a different place. The act of deception in our world is not all false. It's the mix of truth and falsehood together that makes it distorted. Sometimes the deception is promising something you can't deliver. I assume we can all recall Bernard Madoff, right? The Ponzi scheme, you know? It's not that it was all false. It was that he promised things he couldn't deliver. He promised things that weren't actually all true or at all true. You know, there's some investment going on and some payoff, but the transparency that requires what's paying what off wasn't there because that was the part that was a deception. Some truth, but the exaggeration, what he said did not reflect the truth of the statements. And I am sure we've all learned our lesson, right? In investments, we're going to be pretty careful about where we invest our money and who we trust and going to look for some figures and some transparency and some approval from certain agencies that this is a legit deal because we've been burned. How about spiritually? How about in a broader sense? Because the devil is actively seeking to turn people away from the truth. The devil is always distorting. He's always exaggerating. He's always taking something and misapplying it to deter people from the truth. Let me tell you what that looks like. 
Because it's not the truth, it's people's interpretation of what happens. That is the deception of the devil. In Kazakhstan, we had a woman who started this mercy ministry. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. The Soviet Union tried to ignore the reality of kids with cerebral palsy, kids with Downs, uh, and so they would institutionalize them and pull them out of society so a visitor would think we're a perfect society. Okay? There, we have no handicapped people. We have no people with limited mobility with, that are suffering that look different than the rest of us. They don't exist because they've been ignored and neglected. This percentage of the population uh, is completely abandoned. So this woman started a mercy ministry, uh, ends up being, marrying the youth director and is a, one of the leaders in our church. But she started a ministry where they would, she would have a young lifestyle club just for special needs kids. They get volunteers from the church to come do these clubs for the kids where they could play games. Uh, the first time I saw this, I was amazed because I couldn't tell the difference between the games the regular kids played and the games that here at this special club they were playing. If the wheelchairs weren't there, I wouldn't have noticed because the kids are laughing and shrieking. Okay, some of them are drooling. Some of them don't have motor skills and control, but they're all having a great time. She organizes this. It happens every week. Then there's Bible studies and something for the parents. And uh, those who have the ability, they have a little craft day where they learn to make things they can sell. It's a fantastic ministry. Well, our church is located across the street from a school, a private school. And somebody, either the minister of defense of Kazakhstan or somebody way high up in that organization comes out one day, and it happens to be a day when we're having a club like this, and he sees those kids uh, come down the ramp outside our church. And he's horrified. And he comes and reads us the riot act about how we're disturbing the mental health of the healthy kids at the school. And if we don't stop that, he's going to call the police and shut the whole thing down. And he's going to be generous. And if you want to build a 10-foot high fence to separate us from you, I'll pay for it. He saw the great thing God was doing. God was communicating to these kids that I love you. You are just as important to me as anybody else, and we're going to have a great time together. I'm going to put my arms around you. I'm going to give you a community of friends, and in that context, you're going to get to know me and my character and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he interpreted it as a terrible thing because Satan, through the culture, through the network of thought, through the mindset, deceived him and told him that that event was something else. This is a bad thing. It's a dangerous thing. We must shut it down. There's still some effects of that guy's anger that our church is facing to this day. But he saw God's work and couldn't understand it because the devil deceives and distorts. Do we see the distortions of the devil? Do we understand how it affects our thinking, the thinking of those around us? Are we asking God by his spirit to correct our thinking, to give us true interpretation of what's happening? The works of the devil inevitably bring judgment. You see what Paul says. He says, And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see for a time. This is not Paul getting angry. This is the Spirit speaking a word of judgment. Now, what's interesting, what word of judgment did this magician get? You will be blind and unable to see. Now, it's interesting on one hand because the punishment fits the crime. He was deceiving people. He was causing other people to be blind because he didn't understand the truth. So now he will be physically blind, which will represent his spiritual state. It's a fitting punishment. But what's interesting to me is, have you seen this judgment of God before? Who else was temporarily made blind because of their hostility to the gospel? 
It's the guy who's speaking, right? Saul was given a temporary judgment of God because of his hostility to the gospel, and now he's pronouncing the same judgment on someone else, which suggests to me it's an invitation. There's a number of cases in the Bible. Uh, uh, Zechariah, um, yeah, Zechariah, father of John the Baptist, he had a temporary judgment. He couldn't speak until he named his son. Uh, Miriam, sister of Moses, she was temporarily had leprosy for a week. She repented. You see, the judgment in that case was a teaching instrument. It called them to repentance. And so I think this is even a call to repentance that this magician, he too would repent. Now, we don't read about any repentance. The judgment could have been permanent. It could have reflected his eternal separation. But do notice, God will judge sin. And there's no reason to go beyond ourselves. Uh, There's no reason to start judging other people's sins. It starts right here. God, where have I been deceived? God, where have I been the magician? God, where am I more like Elymas than I'm like Paul? Show me, convict me, and remove that sin from my life. And let me close with uh, looking at our hero here. Who is this story written for? The story is about the proconsul, right? Uh, Because faithful mission will always produce a winsome invitation. This story is about the proconsul and his response. The proconsul is the typical reader. Remember, this whole book is dedicated to Theophilus. Luke and Acts together, a two-volume series, is dedicated to Theophilus, probably a wealthy Roman, okay? Uh, Probably an aristocrat, a sponsor of this work. And so this is a defense of the gospel and a proclamation of the gospel to Theophilus and his circle of friends. And if you notice here, the proconsul is portrayed quite positively. He's not a Jewish magician, right? I mean, he's not an evil Roman guy. Now, you could call Romans evil, but Luke doesn't do that because that's his audience. He's a properly neutral background person who he's trying to win to Christ. Now, those of you who like to fill in the blanks, I'm going to mess with you here as I leave, okay? (laughs) Because... The proconsul, don't write it down, is the one who saw and heard the gospel. But you knew that, okay? You know the proconsul saw and heard the gospel. I want to ask you to pray about whose name you're going to put in the blank. The proconsul heard Paul, who lived 2,000 years ago, preach the gospel, and he saw a miracle, the judgment immediately placed upon this guy, God's work through him. But I'm going to talk about the proconsul today. Who has God put in your life? who God today, now, through his word to you, through the word, through the spirit, is calling you to pray for and to be part of him seeing and hearing the gospel. I want you to pray about whose name you could put in that blank. If you put the proconsul, then you have to go back in time, and you have to be better than Paul. (laughs) Okay, so don't put the proconsul down unless you've got a proconsul in your life. Who is a proconsul in your life? Because what's the end result? The proconsul places trust in Jesus. That already happened. Don't write it down. (laughs) Who can you pray for? Who might God be leading you to begin a relationship with who you are going to pray that they will receive Christ? Pray that God will lead you in that endeavor. The Holy Spirit united these brothers in worship. He spoke to them. They responded. and They sent out the first generation of missionaries. And they went out preaching the gospel. And you will see all the many things that they did as they preached as God did miracles through them, as God transformed cities and believers and groups through them, how they persevered through persecution. 
And the result was that hundreds, if not thousands, in their generation came to faith. The last statistic I want to share with you. In 1986, when we began to be called to go to Kazakhstan, I read a book that said there were 10 known believers among the Kazakh people. 10 known believers. Today, a generation later, there's about 10,000. Because God spoke to people like you who are sitting in a room just like this in churches all over the United States, Korea, South Africa, Australia. And somebody heard God call them. And now a generation later, we grew up, Soviet Union, who were they? Evil empire. Now there's 10,000 Kazakh people who claim Jesus who would love to be here with us. Somebody might even download it and translate it into Russian, into Kazakh. Because the Holy Spirit worked through people like you who heard him speak as they worshiped God. Let's pray. God, we are here to worship you and to acknowledge your lordship, that you are the king of kings, that you are our personal king. And so we bow down before you. We give ourselves to you and we will obey whatever you ask for you are our king. Father, send us forth into mission that we might proclaim by the Spirit's power the gospel with our lives, with our words, with our actions. Empower us because none of us can do this. We'll just ruin your reputation. We'll be worse than Elymas. Cause us to be your witnesses, declaring your truth, showing your love and mercy that the world might see a true representation of you and that you by your spirit might draw people to salvation. I pray for these men as they pray about who they can evangelize, how they can witness to you, that you would guide them and that your spirit would speak and that we all together would hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.